from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Acting Navy Secretary Thomas Modley says finding hospital beds in Guam is holding up the movement of sailors with coronavirus off the USS Theodore Roosevelt. The ship's commanding officer, Captain Brent Crozier, wrote Sunday the spread of the virus is accelerating aboard the carrier. Politico reports a senior officer aboard the Roosevelt told the San Francisco Chronicle 150 to 200 of the ship's 5,000 sailors are positive already. The Defense Department will modify hundreds of contracts to get coronavirus supplies faster. DOD's buying $84 million worth of ventilators through one modification. NextGov reports the modifications will drive immediate cash flow to the defense industry. The Navy will let officers put off retirement for up to a year in response to coronavirus. Chief of Naval Personnel Vice Admiral John Knoll says the Navy will prioritize sea duty and critical billets. USNI News reports the goal is stability to the force during the pandemic response. General Motors will start making more ventilators because the president invoked the Defense Production Act. It's one of the tools in President Trump's arsenal for mobilizing industry to fight the disease. Mark Kansian is senior advisor in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mark, welcome. Thanks for joining me. What's the Defense Production Act mean and what's the significance of the president just saying in the first place, we're going to make it possible for me to use this as he did a couple of weeks ago? Yes, the Defense Production Act was passed in 1950 in response to the crisis of the Korean War, and it's been reauthorized many times uh, since then. The parts that are of interest now are those that give the president authority to direct civilian industry uh, to give priority to national security production and needs. It's been used quite a bit in the past, particularly after 9-11. Uh, so the president's uh, uh, actions here have been quite consistent uh, with the uh, past. What does it mean when the president says specifically then, as he did with GM and Ford, we need you to do this, whatever this may be at the particular time that this or any president invokes it, does that mean they have to basically take an order from the commander in chief? Uh, exactly. The purpose is to give priority to national security needs. Now in the past, those uh, directions from the government have been focused on particular production problems and you're seeing that now with this general motors and tech uh, contract uh, action here to speed up uh, uh, production uh, i think also there was an element of making an example of them as the french say uh, to encourage the others i think this can be uh, dpa can be helpful to defense industry because they want to be uh, helpful in the current crisis, but often they're constrained by prior contracts, by employees and by unions, and the DPA can help them uh, overcome those restrictions. Now you saw, you oversaw the implementation of this. Uh, what's the mechanism that, what happens behind the scenes to make this happen? It's not simply a decree of the president and the company or companies uh, that are supposed to respond, respond. What's kind of the, 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 the follow-on effect and who does what, Mark? 
Well, behind the scenes, there's a lot of discussion between the government and industry. Um, I think most of the actions you probably won't even see, just having this authority gives the government the lever it needs to get industry to do what needs to be done. And very often it doesn't even need to be uh, invoked. But if it, if it does need to be invoked, I mean, the president can sign an executive order telling the companies to do what needs to be done. And, uh, you know, that has the force of law. And that making an example uh, line that you used a moment ago, I think is interesting because it strikes me that's probably maybe the most effective issue here. The president can say in one area, ventilators in this case, uh, we need those. And it strikes me that industry more broadly probably looks across the landscape and says, yeah, in a case like this, we'll probably also need X, Y, and Z. And maybe it's in our best interests to start to do that on our own terms rather than waiting for somebody to tell us we have to do it and then scramble. Am I reading that right, Mark? Exactly. That's why I say you probably won't see a lot of public uses, but behind the scenes, you'll see a lot more. And just having this tool will help the government uh, increase production. And it also, as I said, I think helps industry because they can go to you know, other, uh, uh, to their suppliers and to other customers and say, listen, we, we have to do this because of the EPA. Uh, we don't have any choice. We're, we're, we're sorry that we have to um, rearrange our priorities. I want to switch gears in the time that we have left, Mark. You're also an expert on the Defense Department's budget. A lot of money going to the department in the stimulus bills that have passed so far. What's your takeaway from what you've seen about the cash flow to the department and thereby the cash flow potentially to industry flowing through the department as a result of these stimulus bills? Well, the stimulus bill, of course, uh, provides $2 trillion uh, for the economy. DOD's share is about $10.5 billion. Maybe half of that goes to DOD's own healthcare needs. It's about two and a half billion for buying supplies like ventilators and personal um, protection equipment. Uh, there's money for the guard and uh, active duty operations in regard to the current crisis. Uh, there's a lot of uh, flexibility in the funding so DOD can rearrange it if necessary for pop-up requirements. There's flexibility on contracting to speed up uh, contracts. Uh, and finally, there's a restriction that none of the money can be used for the border wall. Does any of that come as a surprise? Is there any of that that fits or doesn't fit more broadly with the department's planning strategy post-coronavirus? No, I think this fits with what the department thinks it will need in the future. The early uh, iterations of this legislation just had all the money going into a transfer fund to be decided later. But as time went on, I think that the Congress talked with the department and got some sense about where the department thought it was going to need money and therefore put money for these particular purposes. But there's still a lot of flexibility. Mark Cancy, and thanks as always. Appreciate having you on, my friend. Happy to be here. Up next, the business of the Defense Department and Congress continues straight ahead on Government Matters Coronavirus and the National Defense Authorization Act. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back to House Armed Services Committee's holding off on its markups of the new National Defense Authorization Act. April 30th was the committee's target date to begin. Bill Greenwalt, senior fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council. He's former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Policy. Bill, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. The House and Senate Armed Services Committees are taking two different approaches to this. As I mentioned, Adam Smith says the ask will hold off. Senator Inhofe on the Senate side has gotten the Senate started, the, the SASC, on paper hearings. Does this make a difference or is this all just kind of machinations, logistics stuff right now? Well, I think it's to a great degree logistics at the moment, but as this whole crisis plays out, I think uh, both sides are gonna have to adjust if they really wanna pass a uh, defense authorization this year. Uh, both the House and Senate uh, markups are not conducive to virtual uh, uh, implementation. And so I think what you're going to see is a lot of uh, trial and error and, uh, and eventually they're just going to have to go to that process. They're just not going to be able to bring the members in to the tight quarters that uh, at, least, at least for the next uh, month or two uh, that's going to be necessary to, you know, to pull the markup off. Yeah, as as this as I started to think about this and read some of the pieces in in uh, news outlets about how this was going to work, and then see the comments from the various members themselves, it strikes me that this maybe is one of the most prominent examples of having to figure out a new normal because of this crisis. Because traditionally, as you well know, and as you've told me on many occasions, this is face to face very close, very intimate discussions, not just on the parts of the members, but on the parts of the staffers and both parties and both chambers of the Hill. Am I, am I right on that? No, absolutely. Uh, my experience in, in the Senate, we had a very, very small hearing room. All 25 members were there sitting around a table uh, with uh, two or three staffers each. It, it got very hot, very close. Uh, it wasn't one of those things where it's on the floor where you only have one member talking. It's everybody there, uh, sleeves rolled up, uh, working the issue. There's just no way they can do that. So, so I think this is going to have to be starting with virtual hearings. They'll have to go to a virtual process. Staff will have to uh, uh, draft up all of these uh, uh, provisions. And members individually are going to have to agree on them either through email or through, uh, 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 through uh, video. Is that necessarily bad for the process, Bill? Is there something inherent about the face-to-face -face contacts that makes it necessary, or is that just the way it's always been done historically, so that's the way it's always been done? Well, it, it, it's, uh, you know, there's a difference in culture between the House where the markup open and where the, and the Senate where it's closed. And you see a lot of interaction in the Senate uh, not for the cameras, but actually trying to solve and debate the, the, the issues. And I think you'll lose a lot of that. At the same time, if this is a one-off uh, uh, deal, I think they can actually do this and potentially streamline what it is they're actually going to uh, propose, maybe have a smaller bill, a skinnier bill, and uh, uh, move forward and look, look forward to next year. We have about a minute left, Bill. What sense of timeline do you have, or is it even possible to have one, given that we don't know when things might change and what the next normal looks like? Yeah, I, I think they will do whatever they can to pull together a compromise bill on each side uh, in the House and Senate. 
And then after that, I think what you're going to see is, is the beginning of, of, of staff negotiations over the over the, the summer and fall. And I don't see this package coming together until after the election. Bill Greenwald, thanks as always, my friend. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. Up next, keeping track of recommendations for the nuclear enterprise. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the Defense Department can do to manage its own suggestions better. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Defense Department has its own recommendations to improve its command, control, and communications of its nuclear enterprise. But there's more the department can do to keep track of how it implements those improvements. Joseph Kirschbaum's Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Joe, thanks very much for coming on. What did you look at here? It strikes me that as I did the first pass of this, you're looking at the way the department is implementing its own recommendations and you have recommendations of yours on top of that. Am I reading this right? You are, Francis. Uh, if you recall, we talked about this several years ago after the department began implementing some of these major recommendations. They came out of major reviews the department did in 2014 and 2015 related to problems. They had found systemic long-term problems with the entire strategic nuclear enterprise across the board from readiness to equipment to morale. And they implemented or they, they came up with about 240, give or take, uh, depending on how you divide them, uh, recommendations to make improvements across the board. Congress wanted up, us to follow up on them every year um, until the next year, 2021, it will be our last report, and essentially figure out how they're doing that, how they're implementing those recommendations, and then suggest any improvements of our own. So that's what we've done. We've been following up uh, ever since, every year. And um, frankly, we think the process they've developed to at least develop and implement recommendations and track them has, for the most part, been very good. The, that was my takeaway as I dug into this a little bit, Joe. You're right. The department continues to make progress in implementing recommendations to improve the nuclear enterprise. What's brought that on? What have they done and how have they done it to continue to peck away at this? One of the main ways they've uh, achieved so much progress is, frankly, recognition by the department of the importance of the strategic nuclear enterprise. It is uh, very clear in all of the major documentation and strategies of the department and the administration that the health and effectiveness of the strategic nuclear deterrent is the department's essentially number one priority. So uh, in a nutshell, that's what causes the impetus for progress. And what that has meant is the, the mechanics for how the department has set this up are tools to help identify um, challenges that they faced, the recommendations that they originally made, and then kind of go back and look at the problems those are meant to address, whether it's a morale issue, whether it's a very specific uh, matter of aging equipment, what, whatever the, the issue, identify the original problem. And then they built a process which uh, we think is, is very effective in, in identifying who's responsible for addressing it, uh, timelines for how to address it and how long it's going to take, metrics for figuring out what progress you're making, and then 
what's really important from our perspective is an evaluative element that uh, the office of the um, CAPE uh, helped them develop, which is looking at the, cha the changes and actions they do take and assessing them for whether or not they've addressed the original problem. That, though, that strategic focus and leadership focus and that method has really helped them achieve some success. That uh, correcting the original problem is what you and your colleagues at GAO always gently, sometimes not so gently, remind me is the point of this and not just closing recommendations. And it strikes me there are still some underlying issues that are potentially challenging for the department. You write, uh, the uh, military services DOD experiencing challenges related to sustainment and maintenance of nuclear weapon systems have ongoing and planned initiatives to mitigate these challenges. What are some of the things that you found when you look at the challenges specifically that the department's trying to deal with? Um, as the department closes recommendations or implements them, uh, the it becomes a little harder, actually. They have momentum, they have a process, and, and we think it's effective. And one of the things we're constantly trying to do is ensure the department maintains focus on that effort. And so that has helped them achieve success. But as they've come across the recommendations that they, they call more in, enduring, which are those things that cannot be solved by just throwing money, changing a policy, and then moving on, they're longer term. Those are the, the harder nuts to crack. Those are the ones that are going to be with them for a long time. So that makes it more important to actually have that focus on them. So the sustainment challenge is a good example. I mean, we have uh, major weapon systems in the, throughout the, the strategic triad, as it were, the submarines, the missiles and air element um, that are at a minimum uh, over 20 years old. Those are the youngest ones. Uh, the rest of them are very old. So they're aging out. They have all kinds of uh, issues with maintenance availabilities, parts, obsolescence. There's a plan to replace most of those, at least at some point. And leaving aside for a moment any acquisition challenges there may be for those, um, there may be timing challenges with getting those into the uh, replacement systems online and what you have to do to sustain the old systems in the meantime. We have less than a minute left, Joe. Give me a thumbnail of the recommendations that you would like to see the department track or the way that you would like to see them maybe speed up closing some of these recommendations by the time you look at them again next year. So uh, I'm not necessarily concern, concerned with the speed because they've made very good progress. It's that focus. They have these longer-term enduring challenges left to do. Uh, and what we would like to see them do is make sure they're using that system they've developed that's been so effective. So, for example, um, some of the things that they've been tracking for those enduring uh, recommendations in their own system, they've not updated as often. They've kind of left that off, and the, the concern is that indicates maybe a lack of focus. Uh, we did not necessarily see that when we dug into those recommendations. They are continuing to make progress. But in order to help leadership make the right decisions to identify whether things have worked or not worked, and also to identify what risks or unintended consequences might come up, that's where the focus needs to be because that will help them identify those things for the future. Joseph Kirschbaum, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. Our coverage of the impact of the coronavirus on the federal marketplace continues at 8 and 11 every night this week on WJLA 24-7 News. And we want to hear from you. Email us your questions or comments at info at govmatters.tv or tweet us at govmatters.tv. 
I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, tune in or simply ask your digital assistant to play the government matters podcast for a quick fix of government news follow us on twitter our handle is at GovMattersTV. that's the latest from washington join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on wjla 24 7 news and sunday mornings at 10 30 on abc 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government thanks for watching i'm francis rose thanks for listening our daily program is produced by sharice hanner and ashley gallagher christy marriott leads our technical crew our web editor is andrew wagner Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.